Welcome to the show, Brain Health Unchaining Your Pain. And I am really excited because today we have Marilise de Villiers on the show, who is a great friend. She's a high performance coach like myself. And boy, does she have an amazing story to tell. So make sure you've got your raw ready uh, 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 at, the, at the outset, because so, we're going to be doing a lot of roaring uh, in this conversation. For those that you don't don't know Marilise, Marilise is uh, the founder and CEO of Raw Coaching and Consulting. She's an executive coach, best-selling author of the book Raw, How to Tame the Bully Inside and Out, and also behavioral change consultant who specializes in finance technology and cybersecurity awareness, in particular culture and talent. Welcome to the show, Marilise. Oh, thank you so much, Ruth. It's amazing to be with you today. And that's a brilliant welcome. Awesome. <laughs> Love your roar. <laughs> <laughs> so I know you've been on a phenomenal journey and you've also had the opportunity to give a TED talk on, on your on your journey as well, which is a really brilliant TED talk. I love listening to it. And there's some aspects of it I can really relate to. In the context of where you are today, could you just tell the audience what really fires you up, what you're passionate about, what your roar is, you know, vocally that you, lo you love to express? Yeah, absolutely. It is about people uh, finding the courage to speak their truth. And, and essentially, I, I call that it's your roar. And of course, with, with that courage comes also the, um, the great quality of being vulnerable and being open to share your story. So I think for me, um, I am passionate about people living their best lives and making their whole lives work and becoming their best selves. Yeah. And I think that's so important because we can very easily get ourselves stuck in the process of living mm -hmm. rather than living our best life. You know, we go through the sort of activities that, you know, the day to day activities that get us through the day. But we mm -hmm. don't take that time to step back, reflect uh, and understand, you know, Am I stepping into my best self? Am I showing up with the courage and authenticity that I need? Am I doing what's necessary to be my true authentic self? And is the environment that I'm in allowing to, me to be me? And I don't think people take that time to do that sort of self-reflection to really understand how quiet or how loud is their internal roar. Yeah, absolutely. Yes. Yeah. So, so I'd love to uh, explore your journey, if you will. But before we do that, could you tell everyone, because the show is all about brain health and unchaining your pain, what does optimal brain health mean for you personally? So I sort of think about brain health in the context of stress resiliency and mm -hmm. how we cope on a almost like a minute by minute basis um, with the demands that life throw at us and how we stay really present and in the moment and focusing really on the task at hand right here in front of you right now. And I think for me, um, I mean, I've had so much 
um, neural dissonance in my lifetime, you know, just from mm. the anxiety that I get because people, you know, catch you off guard. But it's that ability really to regulate yourself in your environment, in your interactions and and staying really calm and present. Mm-hmm. And I, do you know, I think that is so important. And I love the fact that you bring that environment uh, and the interaction with the environment in because we so often just focus, particularly when we talk about mental health, on the impact that is happening within the person. Absolutely. And we don't look at the system that is affecting that person's brain. Uh, their neural networks that are being developed as a result of the environmental exposure that they're that they're experiencing the toxins in their environment that you know could be physical toxins or toxins from a people perspective toxic people Mm -hmm. Um, and and we kind of often think mental health wise that it's the person that is at fault Mm -hmm. and actually we need to look at the system causing the person to behave in the way that they're behaving which can be incredibly complex and you know Mm -hmm. multi-layered depending on life experiences but the key there is to look at the to look at the system and the environment and I think for me personally I'm I'm really keen (laughs) excited to explore your journey is the environment not only in your home life but how the environment in your workplace really influences how you're showing up absolutely and um, I I write about this in my book I I talk about the toxic trio so my personal journey is very much finding myself after 20 years in a very successful director position in Mm. in a company very successful corporate career but working day in day out with a bully and allowing that bully to bully me day in and day out. Now, when I say allowing that bully to bully me, people people get quite sort of, you know, sometimes I can I have, no, I have no control over it. Like I can't help to be bullied, right? So I'm like, no, I, I played a part. And that was one of the first steps in my recovery was really to say and to take personal ownership and full ownership for my role that I played but to come back to the environment so when I when I talk about that I talk about the toxic trio Mm. because a bully cannot bully without a culture or an environment that facilitates that you know that helps him or her to actually bully other people so it's the the bully the culture and the actual individual the target mm. um and i think you know it's so absolutely vital you know and i i get quite you know passionate about this because i always say that leaders in organizations have a moral and legal responsibility to create safe and inclusive spaces where people can thrive where people are not afraid to speak up so ties it ties it back to the roar as well. Mm, mm. And you know, I think that's really important because you know, often people look at their culture as the best behaviour, but actually, the culture that you have in your workplace is defined by the the, the worst behaviour that you tolerate. Absolutely. And if you tolerate bullying, then your culture is is a bullying culture. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's important that we give people the power to speak up and and say this is not okay Uh, you know this is not okay for me how you're treating me um, and this is not okay for the team either and I I know you talked quite a bit about uh, the you know the shock (laughs) 
the, yeah. the team experience, not just yourself, Absolutely. when it all came to a head. Did, yeah. did you go into into how it how it sort of evolved? Because I know it, and I, you know, for me, I can really relate to this. But I would love you to tell your story first. Is how it evolved over time. The the toxic culture that that that, that fed the bully uh, yeah. and allowed them to thrive. Uh, that then you know obviously allowed you to be in forced you to into survival mode yeah absolutely so I mean it all came to a halt one day it was in the boardroom and um, he sort of came in um, I was with my whole team and he casually announced that um, I will be working on a project full-time so no longer responsible for the entire portfolio um, managing the team and the portfolio but just working on one project and that he was going to step in to save the day he was going to be my you know me in terms of you know running the portfolio and um and that was just the moment where i just you know basically um i was still thinking at that point you know this is only temporary um that you know it's gonna it's gonna go away because once we've delivered this project things will be back to normal right yeah. so I'll, I'll be back reinstated in my role and then one of my team members actually asks so what is happening with my release's role and he basically just again casually announced that they, that role no longer exists and I think that was the moment when the penny sort of dropped for me and where first of all you know talk about talk about neural dissonance and sat there and I could barely breathe you know I could barely you know um, I kind of swallow my tears back you know I, I couldn't really you had no idea did you that this was about to land on you in, in front of everybody absolutely I had no idea so I kind of sat there just really um, not making eye contact with anybody, but really just almost hyperventilating inside. And, you know, sort of um, afterwards just ran to the bathroom as quickly as I could, you know, I mean, obviously it was really, really upset. And and it was there in the bathroom where I sort of looked in the mirror and I realized, you know, I had this little voice inside me that just said, enough is enough. Mm. And that's sort of the point where I took my power back and where I decided, you know, I'm gonna quit. And of course, it, it was it was more out of desperation than anything else. But I mean, that that had a four year, you know, like for four years, he just sort of chipped away at my confidence and, mm. you know, um, kept reminding me basically how incompetent I am. Even though you're at director level and running a portfolio and a team, yes. you know, and, and saving his bacon on, I understand, quite many occasions because of the the leadership style <clears throat> that he brought to to the workplace. Absolutely. The morale was so low. And this is the thing. Um, and and I think one of the, the hardest hardest things for me was to walk away from my team. Mm. Um, because I was that person between him and the team to actually also protect the team from him. And for me, that was the feeling of letting my team down was was hard you know so i felt mm. so responsible for everybody mm. um, but obviously losing myself in the process and obviously damaging my most important relationships with my husband and my two mm. boys and, and to come back to your point about environment so my home environment my home life was you know i was not present in my home life either you know because um i, I guess for about a year before i left um i was so depressed and Heidi, Heidi sort of kept things ticking along, you know, he and the boy, him and the boys sort of 
got used to surviving without me and 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 I I only really that sort of realization came to me after I left and I realized how much I damaged my relationships with them mm. and it took me probably about 18 months or probably I would say 6 to 18 months because it doesn't sort of just you don't just fix it overnight but it took a long time for me to to win them back and to to get that strong connection back and 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 part of it part of it for me was about realizing that if I prioritize me and if I show up as my best self, everybody else around me thrive, you know, so my my kids, my team, my friends, everybody around me thrive. And that was my sort of moment where I realized, actually, I have a responsibility to prioritize me on my list of priorities. Mm. And and, and I I really appreciate you sharing that journey because it really, I can really relate back to it in my experience in the corporate workplace when I was told I had no emotional intelligence, but that wasn't the start of the situation, you know, and put on an unexpected performance review despite meeting the firm's hard targets that they set and smashing them. Uh, But it was the build-up, you know, the the behaviours, the toxic uh, behaviours by the leaders that I was working with um, that that was really diminishing me as personally. Uh, And I would have, you know, nights crying, um, phoning par- p- partners that I could trust to say I'm really struggling to get through this, and I say you can do it. You, you know this is this is fine. You, you're doing the right thing, and obviously yeah. it transpired that you know there was a un- unhelpful culture which I was aware of, but I didn't take the credit to how toxic it was until I had that really dark moment. Um, when I realised that I needed to do something. But I really applaud you for having the courage to make the decision then and there in the toilets to say enough is enough because it took me a really long time to realise enough was enough because I had to validate that I was good enough in a different environment to know that it wasn't me that was at fault uh, and that it was the environment, the surroundings that were diminishing me um not me diminishing being you know a lesser person because of my own behaviors absolutely yeah and and Ruth it wasn't I mean it took took me four years I knew for about three years three of those four years I knew that he was bullying me Mm. and I made little plans to get out um like I was obsessed about how am I going to get out how am I going to get out but it was that sort of exactly as you say I'm not good enough so you you don't think you're good enough that you can walk away and find find another opportunity find a better opportunity you know you you put so much value or your self-worth is so attached to that corporate job and that identity mm. um, that it becomes so hard to, 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 to have that perspective, to take that step back and to say, you know, this is just not a healthy situation mm. to be in. Mm. And, and it's, it comes back to that self-worth you've mentioned. Mm. And, uh, and your like, experience in the boardroom, you know, was very uh, uh, open, um, mm. public, uh, display of humiliation myself personally it was subversive display of humiliation where what happened on being announced I had no emotional intelligence the firm withdrew all of my uh, activities that I really enjoyed doing like coaching others and being a mentor all of that was stripped from me um, at the time that I you know I was put on this performance review 
the things that I really love doing and got value from, you know, really inspiring others within the the workplace Mm -hmm. was all taken. And even at the time um, I found they've told me I needed to find a role, you know, on a project, which is what you what you're supposed to do. Normally it was done by somebody, but I had to Mm -hmm. do it for myself. Mm -hmm. And I found one internally working uh, in a partner space, internal development was really excited to start and I told my partner hey I've got this new role you know I found it really quickly and really excited and he sent me an email back saying I don't think you've got enough emotional intelligence to fulfill this role and so that role was stripped for me despite it being offered and I was accepted and I was seen as the right person it was stripped again from me along with all the others and I had to go and find another paying opportunity so it's just such a horrible experience isn't it when when all that you value all that you know you're worth be suddenly becomes worthless and to another absolutely and I think it's that moment when um so so this is classic bullying tactics right Mm. it's all about that they demand this 100% loyalty so what I'm sensing with your situation, what happened with me was this idea that they became aware that I wasn't 100% loyal anymore. Um, I think they were beginning to feel really insecure about the relationship mm. because I wasn't transparent and um, very forthcoming anymore because my team, I sort of hid te- team matters from him, which I didn't do in the past. And so I think a couple of times he became aware that I wasn't kind of warning him that things were about to happen. And I think that sort of I broke that sort of loyalty, that obsession that he had with me being loyal. And mm. and it's, it essentially comes back to control, that sense yeah. of I'm controlling you. And that was when I think the the nastiness came in and, and the sort of the, the, the open kind of demeaning and demoralizing in terms of how he then, you know, publicly, um, publicly shamed me in front of everybody. Mm. And I think it, it seems, you know, I know you did some f- phenomenal research as part of your book. This is not uh, a- uncommon. This behaviour in the in the workplace is not uncommon. And, uh, you know, when stress is, you know, work stress or work-related stress is seen as the number one uh, epidemic by the World Health Organisation. And until we get deal with the cultural issues within the workplace and obviously there's been a huge shift uh, because of covid but underlying are the cultural values that you tolerate absolutely um we're not gonna see an improvement in the in the stress levels of people or the interactions that we have what could you tell what you discovered uh, for people you know you did this great research with with other people that experienced workplace bullying What, what were the key themes or key yeah. findings that you had from that? Yeah, I think for me, the the main thing um, I discovered was this is not a gender thing. So mm-hmm. women are bullies too. And pr- perhaps more um, upsetting was the fact that women actually tend to bully other women. Um, mm. 
and I guess you know the the, the this is not probably not surprising, but ninety seven percent of the cases the bully was more senior or a peer, so it is that abuse of control that you see a lot. And um, I think the other thing I would say, Ruth, on this, and and yes, it does happen a lot, and I and I think that's also the reason I got so angry and why I wrote my book because I had conversation after conversation after conversation with people that that sort of disclosed to me when when I told my story and I shared my story they shared a relatable story so I got really angry and I thought I thought this only happened to me and that's why I call it a silent epidemic mm. um, and I think what what makes it even harder to address is this exactly this idea of stress because stress is not only a bad thing you know we need stress in our lives healthy stress in our lives to perform to be high performing but it's that point where it tips over and and I think the same with bullying behavior it's that sort of point where it tips over it's such a gray area and it's really really hard to identify and to pinpoint if someone is a toxic bully. Um, I think 70% of the times when people just demonstrate bad behavior and, and potentially bullying behavior, they, they're actually accidental bullies mm. uh, because they don't mean to harm you, but the impact that they have is harmful. So what I find and what I always say to people is that comes back to the need to have the conversation. Of course, don't have the conversation if you don't feel safe, you know, so psychological safety is super, 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 super important. But the, the, the thing is, have the conversation if you're not sure, if you feel safe to actually check out, is this actually someone who's a true bully or is this actually an accidental bully? And, mm. and how you would know is that if you point that out to the person, a person who's not a toxic bully, they would be absolutely mortified, A, of the impact that they've had on you, and B, they will change their behavior. Mm. How are you going to know if you're not going to say to them, this is how it made me feel, or help me understand where you were coming from? So it comes back to those interpersonal skills, comes back to those communication skills, and, and the need to have the courage to have the difficult conversation. Mm. Yeah, and I, do you know, I think that's so important. I did actually challenge all the people that that, that were part of this, you don't have enough emotional intelligence mm -hmm. uh, label that they gave me. And and the, the worst conversation I had actually was with a, one of the partners who, 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 had, who, who was specific in, in labelling me. And they were very um, abrupt in how they spoke to me, you know, very abrupt. Uh, abrasive and aggressive in the in the conversation um and very demeaning towards me in that conversation and then suddenly they flipped to trying to be Mr nice guy and that actual flip in behavior uh, I ended up having an anxiety attack because my brain couldn't cope mm -hmm. with with the with the per personality shift that occurred in the meeting and fortunately I had somebody to help me calm myself down but that was a that was the first time I'd ever had an an anxiety attack and it really took me by surprise because because that I just couldn't believe and neither could the person listening to the conversation the behavior that was exhibited by a partner who who had labeled me with you know a really demeaning label um, and yet was exhibiting the very behaviors that you wouldn't expect of somebody who who truly understood Absolutely. emotional intelligence and I I think I think it's just so important that 
when we do go for challenge, and I think challenge is the right thing that we we line ourselves up with a defence force <laughs> to support us because it can be a hard. You know, when you go on the counterattack, as it were, I mean, we don't want to be a counterattack in the true context of it. But you do need that army behind you who, who can, you know, he'll help you, lift you up and keep you going and, and be that support entity to say, you are right. This is the right thing to do. Yes. You know, it's right for you to voice this because this is how we eradicate it. Um, yes. And often that can be absent, can't it? Because people oh, run to the, you know, run to the corners because they don't want to jeopardise their own career, uh, mm-hmm. and they don't, they don't stand up for others. Absolutely, and this, and this is what you see. You see the the silent majority and people who, you know, I've I've had a situation as well where I. Again, it was in a in a leadership team meeting where again he was you know demeaning me in front of three other colleagues, and I actually emailed or text messaged one of the colleagues afterwards to say, you know, what what is your view on the way that he behaved in that meeting, and had never had a reply. Um, so people really sort of you know. And I think it, it stems from fear, um, mm. and everybody has the same insecurities and the own and the same fears, and and just ultimately, I think, worried about keeping their jobs at the end of the day, you know. But it's interesting what you say about the anxiety of flipping that personality flip. Um, that is exactly what caused my my stress and my anxiety was that not knowing which version of him am I going to see today? Mm. Is he going to be the good boss or is it actually going to be the monster? Mm. And I had to walk past his office every day in the mornings, first thing in the morning. So it was it was literally like throwing the dice and you know which 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 one's he gonna be today? Mm, is it gonna be Jekyll or Hyde? Absolutely. And I got to a point like um there was a there was a specific point on my walk to work. I would get on I had to walk over a bridge and there was a point on the bridge. When I reached that point on the bridge that there was like this prompt in my body that sort of started this hyperventilated breathing because I knew that in a few minutes time I'm going to have to walk past these office and time and time after again in the mornings I had to phone my husband to calm me down you know just to kind of talk to me because I literally felt that sort of anxiety attack coming um yeah crazy crazy times yeah. <clears throat> and it's it's phenomenal isn't it how people and the culture that you're exposed to you know affect you you know at the beginning of your day they just phenomenally um, modifies how your brain functions in ways that you 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 know don't necessarily have the tools to control absolutely because they control Mm -hmm. your brain because they're in control of it because you you've you've kind of lost that control of of your uh you you know your psychological safety has has been stripped from you uh, uh, and these people are now penetrating and, and adjusting uh, how your brain is functioning, mm-hmm. um, which, which is just such a, it's just such, for me, it was such a disempowering feeling um, to, to not have control of myself um, and that somebody had stripped that from me. 
Absolutely. And I think what, what's also really interesting is how, um, you know, I said to someone one day that, first of all, I for a long time, I believed that I was a bully magnet. Mm. <laughs> the things we make ourselves believe sometimes. But yeah. And then I kind of said, oh, but, you know, and this was not even with the bully. This was a couple of years later in a different role. I was just saying this person is such an energy vampire. Oh, and, then, and then the oxygen colleague, thief. Yeah, oxygen thief. And then my colleague, my colleague turned around and she said, "But Marilise, you are allowing him to be yeah. an oxygen thief." And I, it was such a profound moment for me because I had to realise that actually there is there is that part that's within my control. I can control my response and how yeah. much I allow these things to to influence and impact me. Yeah, so. and I, I do you know I love the I love your term energy vampire because it it literally does they take that energy from you, don't they, that you possess, and it turns it into negative energy, which you then impose back on yourself. Mm -hmm. And you know, we can be harmed by really unhelpful words by people mm -hmm. but it's the words we say to ourselves based on the you know what could be one conversation that we play over and over in our mind a thousand times so it becomes death by a thousand cuts but we've yeah. only been cut once by Absolutely. by this person but we cut ourselves a thousand times and I think it's it it's it, it can be so just we can be so destructive on ourselves, and I love the fact that you talk about the inner and the outer bully could, could you just expand on that a little bit more yeah so to, to pick up on what you're saying about the thousand cuts you know I kind of I, I like to think about it as sort of paper cuts you know yeah you, you think about all those little paper cuts and it doesn't necessarily you know harm you but it harms you right so yeah, um, yeah so I um, I'm thinking about a, a particular point I make or sentence in my TED talk where I say you know unfortunately for many of us the relationship with ourselves is the most toxic relationship that we will ever be in and that's yeah. the inner bully so in my in my words in my language that's the inner bully and um that could you could call that your inner critic you could call it your imposter um you know the inner villain everybody has different ways of describing their inner villain in a bully the reason I call it my inner bully is because it's so linked with my story and the fact that um, I didn't not just experience bullying which I define as abuse mm -hmm. in the workplace but I also experienced sexual abuse as a child mm. um, and, and for me the connection between um, the two types of uh, abuse um, the impact was exactly the same in terms of the conversations that I was having with myself about I am not enough, I'm damaged goods, that sort of thing. So mm. um, that's why I call it an inner bully because what not not only was I abused by other individuals, but I also started abusing myself because I then um, had an eating disorder for 15 years. So between the ages of sort of 12 and 25, I was really quite ill and I ended up in rehab. Mm. Um, so that's why I use the term inner bully because it is about abuse but not just others abuse but your own abuse where mm. you are basically harming and hurting yourself because mm. of events and circumstances and your environment mm. and I, I thank you for sharing that journey because I think it's really important and I think what we often find is people who've experienced had adverse childhood experiences like sexual abuse as a child look for an out to deal with the pain yeah. 
that they are experienced that they have experienced and and they need something to to mark to mask or or whatever their dis decision is in terms of how they want to um, minimize the pain often um, can become their own abuser so you know in your case it was you 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 took to eating uh, you you focused on um, becoming as fit as you could because that was your outlet to yes. to deal with the to deal with the sexual abuse that you experienced but then suddenly it became a, a, an addiction and it became yeah. an abuser to Absolutely. you and so you had a multi-layered abuse experience that actually yeah. started off as a as a great relationship a, a great way for you to escape the initial abuse that you experienced absolutely yeah yeah and um i know it you your journey is phenomenal and i just thought your ted talk was was just amazing the insights that you gave is is how you were able to really take back control uh, and it took you to you know rehab was what necessitated you really really doing that could, could you describe how that how that transpired and how it shifted for you yeah, so I think the the realization that I had in rehab that I had this inner bully that I had this in inner conversation, um, I think was was a real revelation and um, and then you know I could start really catching myself and catching that downward spiral of you know mm. I'm not enough um, and I think what what i would say you know like it's not like a straight line it's not like i walked out of rehab and i was healed you know it took it took a number of years and you relapse and all those things you know it's not and and today still i have to manage what i eat i have to manage my exercise because i have a tendency to want to overdo things mm. and i have to be careful um but 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 it's getting better and better and better because I keep working on it and I keep focusing on it. And most importantly, I'm I'm having more and more kind conversations with myself. Mm. And it's that whole self-compassion thing as well. But but yeah, so I think it's it's really about every kind of next step for me has been about recognizing the conversations that I'm having with myself and catching myself and changing the conversation and mm. to, to a more empowering positive conversation mm. but i have good days and i have bad days you know but um hope hopefully it's you know touch wood but the good days are definitely out outweighing the bad days now <laughs> and you know we had a, a previous guest on the show nazi katoon is a fitness coach and she also suffered from uh, eating disorder as a result of uh, previous trauma and and she she also mentioned that you have to it's something that you have to practice daily Absolutely. you have to work on it daily it doesn't just go away uh and certain things in your life can be a trigger to rear to rear it again and i think you said in your book didn't you that the workplace Absolutely. Uh, triggered it triggered it back into life again that the the yeah, so those um, sort of patterns of behavior, right? So I, um, I kind of recognized how, you know, I was I was not necessarily um, um, binge eating again, but I was using wine, for example, as an anesthetic. So yeah. I would come home in the evenings, and instead of going to the gym, or instead of, you know, um, eating healthy, I would just have a couple of glasses of wine, sometimes a bottle, you know, because yeah, it is 
an aesthetic. Yeah. Um, so it's it's really catching yourself. And and I think that was the that was the sort of the silver lining when I when I left my my corporate uh, role. Um, I actually instinctively knew that I had to focus on getting my health back on track. Now in my world that was my physical health and I and I zoned in. So I worked with a transformation coach for six months and she really helped to knock me back into shape, you know, because I I was used to training almost like an athlete. Mm. And that just kind of disappeared over the years and after having kids and it's just this kind of you know snowball. Um, but the whole kind of uh, six months straight after I left was 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 so important to 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 focus on my 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 physical health of course the coach worked with me on my mental health as well so that the two in combination but it created so much momentum in all the other areas of my life mm. Mm. and do you know that's exactly what I ended up having to do it wasn't about building emotional intelligence it wasn't about um, you know, becoming mentally robust. It was about building my energy levels, focusing on on uh, on getting the best out of myself from an energy perspective, and really that really that change in my habits from a physical standpoint. That you know, not drinking wine that was my go-to as well to numb the experiences that I had at work uh, and try and forget them. Um, is cutting that out of my diet, cutting out the sugary sweets that I was consuming um, every single day to get through the afternoon. Um, chocolate brownies were my go-to and I put on loads of weight. <laughs> um, and, you know, double double lattes, you know, full-fat lattes, not even skinnies. Um, and so I was just piling and piling, piling on these additional calories just to escape uh, and feel better in myself, get that sugar hit to feel better. And then I'll obviously it became an addicted addictive habit um, and it was important to to break those chains um, so that I could rediscover the energy that I was used to like yourself you know training not not at the level that you did but ha having a regular exercise routine which was so important uh, to 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 help me from an energy perspective emotional physical mental and spiritual standpoint so important Absolutely. Energy and energy truly is everything. And that's yeah. why if, if, if I take my sort of raw blueprint, you know, I always say, um, you know, you turn your thoughts and your feelings and your words and your actions into your four superpowers. Because I love that. it's really about, you know, you you are your superpower. And um, so that's why that kind of and I'm and I'm it's a circle because the blueprint is a circle, but it's kind of it's the heart of the circle is that mm. sort of inner game and outer game and generating energy for life every mm. single day. Yeah, it's so important, isn't it? And I'd love to um go back a little bit because that energy piece uh was really difficult for you. Um, your inner and outer game that you you had to deal with when you experienced the abuse as a child. Would you would you mind you know expressing the difficulties that you had because because of having that voice yeah. was really difficult uh, at the time that you experienced the abuse. And I know you were trying to be protective of another person as well. Yes, yes. So yeah, so ironically, I've just done the bravest thing, um, which basically, um, I discovered, um, again, this was a, a moment where I believe God spoke to me and um, told me that my sister is at the abuser's house. So this was a Saturday afternoon, I was 12 years old, my sister was eight. Um, and 
I was playing in the garden and I realized with this voice saying to me, go to his house now. Um, so I literally ran to his house and, you know, I remember coming, um, arriving at his house and, and, and being relieved because they were in the kitchen. Um, he was always entertaining the children, making cakes and all sorts of sweets and treats uh, to, to attract kids to come to his house. And then I was just sort of sat there, um, you know, watching the situation. And um, after a little while, I, I stood up and I looked him straight in the eye and I said, you know, we are going home now. And I, I say in my TED talk, that was my very first roar. Roar! <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, so that was a very profound moment. But of course, then that evening, we told my, my parents. So the first thing my sister sort of begged me to do is not to tell my parents because he was threatening her with, with a gun. Wow. Um, he said he was going to kill kill my folks. Um, so she was very anxious um, when I basically said, I'm going to tell mum and dad. Fortunately, mum and dad, you know, believed us straight away. But of course, the devastation was just um, absolutely heartbreaking. You know, they were just, both of them were heartbroken. Mm. And I think that was that was the, the thing that I struggled with the most is the fact that I felt, A, I didn't really protect my sister. I couldn't protect her. Um, I felt guilty because my parents were going through so much pain and heartache. Um, I also felt, um, you know, that by, by speaking up that I was, um, you know, disrespecting an older person in our community. And, and of course, mm. in the 80s, it was like kids, kids are, you know, seen, but they're not heard. So just mm. the fact that I did speak out and I, you know, um, brought this all to light. And it was, of course, it wasn't just us being abused. There were lots of kids in the neighborhood um, that were wow. being abused. Um, this was this was another sort of guilt that I was had, had to cope with, you know. It's like, so it was this kind of blaming myself and feeling guilty and feeling ashamed because, of course, everybody knew I'm from a really, really small town, uh, countryside, a little village. So everybody knew what's happened. And it was that sort of combination of things. I think there was just too much for me to handle. Of mm. course, I told my parents, don't worry about me. I'm fine. You know, I'm the perfect daughter, the perfect older do eldest daughter. And I just sort of carried on with my life. And all the focus was on on, on, on my sister and, and um, her you know, recovery. So I was very much the strong one. <laughs> and of course, then things spiraled out of control, because I couldn't mm. cope, my brain just couldn't cope with um, all the stuff going on. And that's when I started mm. exercising obsessively, really restricting my food. And yeah, before I knew it, I had, I had a full blown eating disorder. Mm. Mm. Thank you so much for sharing that, because I, I think a lot of people look at an eating disorder and they focus on the disorder and, uh, and how to fix the disorder. But actually, the focus needs to shift on what has caused the disorder in the first place. And for you, often, you know, for many people, um, often the, the root cause of whatever, um, if you want to call it unusual, I'm not going to word, use the word abnormal, unusual behavior um, is trauma. And it can be major trauma that people can't talk about. And, and, you know, I think the fact is that you, when you were 12, you had the, the cognitive intelligence to know what actually had happened but sometimes you don't truly become aware of your childhood experience in terms of understanding the impact and what 
who did what to you mm-hmm. until much later in your life absolutely when you haven't been able to uh, rescue like you were you know you you were really a savior a, a, a lady in shining armor for your sister because you saved her from future abuse that could have occurred uh, and the children in the community were hopefully spared as well who could have been uh, you know abused by that particular person and and the, hopefully the abuse actually you know came to abrupt abrupt stop mm-hmm. um but i think it's very easy for us to um not be aware especially as adults and parents and you know you're a parent i'm a parent um is to not really be aware of the trauma that children can experience because they struggle to communicate that trauma to adults in a way that adults can really understand. Yes. And and then, as you said, there's that fear factor, isn't there? That what will my parents think? What will the community think? How will they cope? Mm -hmm. So children end up trying to bear the burden because they don't want to put their parents in the pain or through the pain that they're experiencing in the moment or have been experiencing yeah there's a there's a wonderful book um um and and it's exactly the question that we should be asking is what you're saying um what happened to you so mm. it's um it's basically um dr dr bruce perry um, um wrote the book with oprah winfrey and it is absolutely looking at that whole concept of children and you know behavior behavior problems and not not asking the question of what's wrong with you but actually saying what happened to you mm-hmm. and because there's always as you say there's always that sort of related trauma or most often there's that related trauma that is the reason for the behavior in the first place yeah yeah and i think it's so important charlie smith another guest his dad it was very physically abusive to him from an early age and he was a pillar in the community and so he again was silenced he couldn't say anything because the father was seen as that amazing figure within the community the family was the you know the ideal family and actually the reality behind closed doors was incredibly different and in his case what what the outcome of his trauma was the fact that he became uh, he struggled with education and learning and, and people would label him as being, a, you know, not not good learner. But mm. actually, he didn't have the capacity to learn because the physical trauma was preventing him from activating his cognitive abilities. Mm. Uh, and it wasn't until he realised that that learning was going to be his saviour out of the abuse that he was in, that he was able to, to, to literally in, overnight... Uh, shift his mindset uh, uh, and become uh, you know a great learner to to find a way out Uh, and you know I it's such a it's such an important topic you know the bulimia that you you discuss and the child adverse childhood experiences that I think it's really important we create that safe space like you say in the workplace for children to have those conversations and and talk about what is what is troubling you know what is happening to them mm-hmm. like you said not labeling the person but what what is going on Absolutely. um to help them 
you know talk about it and and then get the help that they need mm, absolutely yeah and uh in terms of your your journey obviously as a as a teen you you, you went through rehab what would you say uh, to any parent you know given you observed how your parents reaction what would you say to any parent who's got concerns about um their child their child's eating disorder what, what would you advice would you give to them i think it's the toughest advice because it's the fact that you you cannot rescue your child your child has to come to their own conclusion right so i think what, what often you see is parents parents trying to fix the problem parents trying to fix their children and trying to control it and i i did go through a period where of course of course it started as anorexia where the doctors had to intervene and my mum mum was really um you know instrumental in intervening with the doctor um but then of course they made me eat all I said is final, I'll start eating. And then that's where the bulimia started because it, was, it wasn't about the food, right? <laughs> yeah, because that wasn't then, the root cause of the problem. And then, of course, again, it's that sort of um, extreme anxiety that my mum and dad experienced because they just couldn't make me better. I had to make the decision and I, wa I had to want to get better. Yeah. And so I think it's, this is, there's, a, there's, a, there's a message for parents around holding a space for your child and loving your child and supporting your child but not wanting to fix the child mm, that's really powerful and i think that's so important is we do look for a fix uh quite often and actually we need to give people that space yeah. to go on that that journey Absolutely. that growth journey and they need to own it like you say we talked about you know we lost our personal power um because somebody intervened and, and we allowed them to take it away from us it is we need to be given the tools at any age to know how we can win it back absolutely uh, yeah. and that has to be all within our control uh and we need to be given the tools to do the control but not the telling which mm -hmm. is the difference between you know the stark difference between coaching uh, and therapy is that the telling can often make things harder uh, whereas the coaching you go on your own discovery journey because you own the decisions that you make and the you understand those decisions uh, mm -hmm. and the importance of stepping into that person that you that you truly truly want to be i'd love to i'd love to go back into the workplace is mm. is what so i'm just going to tell my story just quickly is when i was in the workplace and we you know i hit rock bottom told i had no emotional intelligence i went to hr and hr uh, tried to pin my behaviors on my past experiences which i found shocking uh, and it was like, oh, because you, because this has happened to you, that's why you're not resilient. Because this, it, it's because of you. So all the labelling went back onto me, rather than for me feeling that HR were, or the organisation accepting their 
responsibility, taking responsibility for their part in, in the process. And I know we talked at the beginning about the culture. Mm. What what do you, and I know you had, you had a very brief conversation, or I'm sure it was longer than brief, but, you know, your conversation with HR, what do, what do you think really needs to change in the corporate space to help people be able to work with a, a centre that is going to support them rather than behave in a way that is kind of hire and reject uh, a function? Yes, yeah, so I, I went through a period where I was very dismissive of HR based on my own personal experience and the fact that mm. I didn't feel that I, I got the support that I needed. Um, and then in my book, of course, um, I state the research where the majority of people do not want to speak to HR because they fear retaliation. Yeah. Because there is this uh, perception that HR works for the company and HR is there to protect the company. Um, but, but there isn't a transparent conversation about HR's role and what they are there to do. So this is kind of always... So I, again, I come back to this. I believe passionately that leaders, which I include HR in, have a legal and moral obligation to make workplace environments safe and inclusive, where people can, as a result of that, can thrive, where people are not afraid to speak up. I feel really, really passionately about that. Mm. I do think HR functions has some way to go. They have work to do. What I've come to learn in the last year or so, because I've been fortunate to speak to lots of HR professionals and um, did a, a keynote presentation at a CIPD event, was very, very interesting because they are probably the people in the organisation that get bullied the most. Wow, that's really interesting. I haven't heard that before. And I got a really, really new, fresh perspective on some of the really unique challenges that HR is facing because they are working with the power you know, the powerhouses. Mm. And so it's it's often, their behaviour often stems from the fact that they are accounting to or reporting to the bully. <laughs> and, 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 and sometimes the bully is the whole institution. So it's not just always an individual person. It's, it's the culture, it's the environment. It kind of, it's just the way we do things around here and what's allowed, you know, those kind of below the line behaviors that are so hard sometimes to pinpoint. Mm. So I got a really interesting perspective on HR and, and quite a lot of empathy for the, the tough position, like the, the tough position that they're in. Mm, that's really interesting because I never really thought of it like that. But you're absolutely right, is that they they have to report to these bullies as well. Yeah. <laughs> and yeah. that's a tough, tough job for them to do, especially if the organization is is rife with them. Absolutely. Um, yeah. And so so what in the context of somebody who is struggling in the workplace, or or let's start with a struggle, what would you say? and they feel they're being bullied, what what would your um, one piece of advice be for somebody who feels that they're being bullied by somebody in the workplace? I think um, depend, it depends on so many different things, right? But I would say mm -hmm. if you have if you have a good enough relationship with the individual, it's always worth, if you feel safe, big caveat, if you feel safe, to try and have a conversation and to give that person an opportunity to change their behaviour. Now, mm. this is probably a more of an early days discussion. This is probably where you've just started working with someone and you've got this sort of sense that they 
could potentially be a bully. Mm. It's worth having the conversation if you feel safe. I think what's more difficult is if the if the relationship is almost like has gone beyond that point of return, right? To you, you kind of know the writings on the wall. Yeah. And you don't really know how to how to get out essentially because essentially I think when it gets to that point it's a case of either you've got to move into a, another area in the organization or you just got to get out of the organization mm. um in that case it's 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 a harder conversation and of course that's where again leaders have that moral and legal duty to create that safe environment where you don't you're not afraid to have a conversation with HR or have a conversation with another leader because you you know that they are going to actually um, do the right thing. The problem is often they protect the bully because the bully mm. is often a brilliant jerk. It's the person in the organization that brings in the most money. And, and of course, that's that's really valued in most, most companies as the number that you generate for the organization. So. Beyond the person. Exactly. So it is such a tough question uh, to answer because there are so many different types of scenarios. Mm. The main thing is you have to feel safe to have a conversation, have a conversation with someone you trust, because the problem that comes in with, you know, having the conversation, especially with someone inside the organization, is that sort of retaliation. So I'm talking about HR, I'm talking about another leader in the organization. Mm. Um, but don't keep quiet, have the conversation. And also, I would say is that don't be afraid to walk away. Even if Yeah, I think that's so important. Great advice. Yeah, even if it's just to get some perspective, you know, even if you just take a period of sick leave to gain some perspective, I didn't do that. I was like, I refuse because if I show any weakness, the bully has won. So I wasn't going to go on sick leave. And what that meant is that I never had that opportunity to just step out of the out of the environment, out of the situation to really regain a little bit of perspective. So mm. don't be afraid to step out, even if it's just temporarily to look after your own health and well-being. Yeah, I do know. I think that's great advice, Marilise. And I think that was the thing that really saved me and, and got me that perspective was was stepping away and, and rediscovering myself again and having that opportunity to lead in a completely different environment that was really difficult and challenging and knowing it wasn't me. Uh, and I think that's so important. And and the last thing is, what what would be your advice to somebody who is in a leadership role, who wants to help? And I know this is a difficult question. Uh, who wants to help change the culture to 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 raise it to a new level and and eradicate bullying? I think any company that is serious about employee engagement and about creating a people-centric culture, let's just call that um, out, um, will want to do the right thing. And, you know, if one leader on their own is going to struggle. But I think if you can really, as a leader, start winning those allies and start building a bit of a, an army of supporters um, and people who really, um, so that ability to influence people, to, to come into that sort of vision that you have, and start with one person, person by person, conversation mm. by conversation, because I don't think it's going to work to just kind of go all guns blazing. Mm. Be prepared to start small. 
Yeah, uh, great advice there, because I think, like you say, uh, having those individual conversations and creating those safe havens, mm -hmm. that safe haven then grows and then you can build it throughout yes. the whole organisation. But you have to create that safety net Absolutely. as a leader first, don't Absolutely. you? Yes. My goodness, Marilise, what a fantastic conversation all about brain health and really unchaining your pain and the journey that you've been on has just been phenomenal. How, how can people um, get hold of you? So I'm, um, I, have, I have a website, marilise-de-villiers.com. So you can get in touch with me on my website or you can just drop me an email, which is marilise at marilise-de-villiers.com. Um, or you can find me on, on any social media platform. So if you just type in marilise-de-villiers, you should be able to find me on LinkedIn. LinkedIn is my main profile uh, or platform, I should say, that I use. So yeah, drop me a message. Love yeah, to have a conversation. Yeah, and do connect with Marilise. Her book is phenomenal, Raw, How to Tame the Bully Inside and Out. And all of that information will be posted in the show notes. Marilise, it's been an absolute pleasure and honour talking to you. Thank you so much for sharing your journey on the show, Brain Health Unchaining Your Pain. Ruth, thank you so much for having me and likewise for sharing your story. I really um, appreciate you doing that and, and I loved hearing a little bit more about your story as well today. So thank Honey, you. You're most welcome. So for those that are struggling, you're not stuck with the brain you have. You do have the power to make it better. You do have the power to unchain your pain. If you do need help, please do reach out to ourselves or we can help you do that very thing. Thank you, everyone, for listening. This broadcast is brought to you by Winject Studios. We are an all-in-one educational platform for podcasters that revolutionizes how hosts leverage content to increase engagement with listeners, downloads, and income. We come together to focus on community, collaboration, and collective impact. For more information on how you can interact directly with our hosts, access exclusive live content with offers you can't get anywhere else from our official partners, join our purpose-driven community by visiting www.winject.com. If you're ready to build a career doing what you love, then we're ready to see you there.